welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Hello, and welcome to episode number 33 of the Free Cities podcast. I hope you're all having a productive week here at the Free Cities Foundation. We have been focused this week on Liberty in Our Lifetime, which is, of course, the Free Cities Conference, which will be held in Prague in October. Something you may not know, it is now less than 100 days away. And I'm pleased to say that we will be showcasing more Free Cities projects this year than ever before, at least 12 as I speak today, and the theme of this year's conference will be Opt-in to Freedom. So, as always, you can expect endless networking opportunities, as well as heaps of practical advice and information on how you can become part of this expanding movement. Anyway, back to the show, and today's guest needs no introduction. He is an esteemed economist legal scholar and libertarian thinker who has, I suppose for many, completely redefined their understanding of individual liberty and the dynamics of human society. However, did you also know he was a connoisseur of medieval cooking? Well, you're about to find out as I sit down for an hour with David Friedman. Now, as you would expect, Our conversation makes many twists and turns, and we cover a fair bit of ground, from the intricacies of Romany legal codes and the judicial system in 10th century Iceland, to the conversational faux pas that one might encounter in a 21st century bardic circle, and even what are the most feasible governance models that could be employed on an asteroid colony. Never a dull day here on the Free Cities podcast. Anyway, this recording was made in a room full of people. So listen out for cameos by David's daughter, Rebecca, and the Free Cities Foundation's very own Peter Young. And with that, as always, it just leaves for me to remind you to sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with David Friedman. something just so I can get some levels. The careful textbooks measure, let all who build beware what load, what stress, what pressure material can bear. So when the buckled girder lets down the grinding span, the blame for loss or murder is laid upon the man, not on the stuff, the man. Right. I haven't got a clue what that was. So could you elaborate a little bit? It's a Kipling poem. Right. And the poem is called Hymn to Breaking Strain. And I, it's, a, it's a good poem, but I like to offer it as evidence that he was really a modern poet because the, image, the, the metaphor that it's built on is the table of breaking strains at the back of an engineering handbook, which wouldn't have existed in the 18th century, I don't think. 
Do you, by the chance, by any chance, have you? Do you remember a gentleman by the name of Raphael Lima, who I've just been speaking to no. private prior to you? He met. He has met you. I am very bad at remembering names. My wife discovered a long time ago that I file people by conversations. So if she says, you know, do you remember so and so, and I look blank, and she says, you know, a tall blonde girl, and I look blank, and he said, you just talked about such and that. Oh, I remember that. Well, I'll try and remind you of the conversation then, because he reminded me of He yes. told me something about you, which I found interesting. It was in Brazil. Mm-hmm. You were speaking somewhere, and you mentioned that the people that came to visit, it was, it was quite a rural place, I think, and everyone mm-hmm. was wearing suits, and mm-hmm. you were like, this is phenomenal. Why are there 800 people dressed up in suits here yes. in Brazil? You don't remember. I, d- I remember. I don't remember the suits. I remember being surprised by the number of people who were coming in Brazil. Right. He he mentioned that you are a fan of medieval reenactments. That is a correct statement. It's correct. It's something I have been doing for about 50 years now. Uh, My wife and I have a medieval cookbook uh, up on Amazon with about 300 recipes giving the original and how we do them. Uh, A whole bunch of stuff. My daughter at this very moment is wearing a pendant that I made that is based on a... 15th century uh one in england so so that's so, been a major hobby for a long time right uh, can i ask a little bit about that before you sure because I, I do I, i'll tell you why i um i was a photographer for many years and um i decided one day that what would be a fascinating this is something i never ended up doing funnily mm. enough but I thought it would be fascinating to, I was a photojournalist, mm. to take my camera and point it at medieval reenactments mm. as if I was a photojournalist. And s- because I thought you're, you're looking at a scene here that mm. is not a hugely different from, from what I was doing in my life mm. as a photojournalist. But obviously I found the dressing, the, the things that were going on. They, and in England, they do them in lovely Jacobean houses or like mm-hmm. whatever. They, they do them in phenomenal places. Yes. But I never actually got around to doing it um, for, for many reasons. But I have, it's always been one of those things that sort of stayed in my mind. Like, what do you, what do you particularly dress up as? Are you a character or do you change every time or do you... You in the organ the group that I'm part of, which is quite a large reenactment group with people all over the world. Uh, you you choose a persona, so you have one persona. Now some people have multiple personae, but it doesn't work very well. And how serious that is varies a lot with people. So for some people, the persona defines the clothes they wear and nothing else. Whereas I think it is fun to try to, as it were, imagine you were actually that person, read some things written from his time and culture, talk with people from the standpoint of your persona rather than your own persona. And my persona is a North African from about 1100, a Berber. Really? Uh, And therefore, I occasionally make references to the civilized world, meaning the Muslim world, or sometimes the lands of peace, meaning the Muslim world, uh, and make other odd comments. That's an interesting persona to take on. What's the dress of the medieval uh, North African... I don't have as good information as I'd like to. The, the robe, that, the, the things that I make and wear mostly are based on one garment that's in the Royal Ontario Museum, I think, in Canada and has been published and which I think is Egyptian around that time. I'm not sure of the exact date. Uh, and 
I am sure that's not a full description, uh, but I make various things that try to be consistent with it, but I don't really have a good source for specifically Maghribi garb from that time. But you're, but you're, as a, when you're in character, are you a traveler who's arrived on the shores of no, or whatever? No, I, I'm not that, my view of it basically is that I am somebody from the Maghreb who somehow got into this world of multiple kingdoms that's the recreation group quite a long time ago. So my modern history, as it were, uh, is my real modern history within the group. That is, I lived in such and such a kingdom, and then I moved to such and such a kingdom, and I did the various things and so forth. So now there are people, one of my friends I remember described that his view was that he was living in a castle in France, and uh, from time to time, he happened to attend, you know, a feast or a tournament or something with all these other strange people who didn't look like Frenchmen there. Uh, but that he, he thought of, whereas I thought of it, as I say, as, as the background, sort of the world I grew up in was one. But this one was, and, and within the organization, it doesn't make sense to talk about dates because then you would have to pay attention to the fact that we're from different times. Right. And the simple solution is, well, people very rarely, I mean, I don't introduce myself <laughs> as a uh, 20th, 20th century American either. But all of this was in America as well. Or did uh, you do it in the, in the UK at all? Uh, I didn't. That is, at one point, I was in the UK and socially interacted with a couple of the people who were involved with it, but I don't didn't attend any events at the time. Uh, but it exists in the UK. Uh, at the time I was there, the UK group was called the Barony of the Fire Isles. Nice. Uh, but I, I, I don't think that's still what it is. That was like 40 years ago or something. Uh, but there are groups... Uh, the the European group has some has European in general, which is one kingdom at this point, uh, has some neat people in it. And I presume that <clears throat> you your interest in in that aspect of or your interest in in role those kind of role playing things, uh, they come from an interest in history in general. I take it. Yeah, yes, but it's. It, Partly in history and partly it's just fun to try to imagine if you were a different person with different beliefs, what it would be like to sort of, when I'm at events, I don't wear glasses. And part of the reason is the glasses themselves don't look medieval. But part of it is that without glasses, I can still see pretty well, but oh. everything is a little fuzzy and that makes it a little bit different from, really? and similarly at events, I try to uh, eat only with my right hand, which would be what... Uh, was the custom of, of, of Muslims at the time. And I try to make a point that if I pet a dog, I do it with my left hand because the left hand is for unclean and the right hand for clean things. Wow, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I mean... It's fun. It is fun, I'm but, sure. But, but it's also... A, there are a bunch of things that I can do in that that I don't really have a role for elsewhere so that uh, cooking research, for example, which we, I've been doing for a very long time and now my wife and daughter do it with me, uh, where you, we've got, there's one 10th century Middle Eastern cookbook, big one that got published. And I, in fact, knew of its existence for a long time and tried to get people to publish it. And then someone else published it, which this translated and published it, which was very neat. Uh, and we've done a lot of that. And some of the recipes we make ordinarily for dinner at home, cause they're good. Uh, 
the the jewelry making is fun trying to see if you can recreate things uh, period jewels one of the things that i was doing earlier today was we went to one of the museums here that has a little jewelry not very much and so i was photographing some things and thinking that there was one piece i might want to make uh, the i do storytelling which is fun that i spend there's a sca event that's a two-week camping event every summer. And we go, we, we drive across the country with a minivan full of tents and rope beds and things and set up there. Uh, and I spend maybe four or five evenings sitting around a campfire telling poems and medieval poems and stories and other people telling them too, but I'm sort of the host there. Uh, and there's no real role for that kind of thing elsewhere. Are all those poems and stories committed to memory? In my case, yes. yes. Uh, not for everybody, but yeah. Uh, and some of them are things I wrote. Some of them are, are things that uh, other people in the group wrote. Uh, some of them are period. Uh, but they're, what I'm trying to do, and this is not the norm of the organization, but this is sort of my, my, my game, as it were, is to create the illusion of a group of medieval people sitting around a campfire entertaining each other in the evening. Uh, so at my bardic circle, at least, you don't say, uh, this is Elizabethan, and you don't say, well, this is a little bit out of period, but it could, you, you just tell it as if it were, it were in period, and that's fun. Okay, then, uh, I'm, 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 I will move on, I promise you, but I do find this fascinating. What's a, what's a 10th century classic recipe, then? You know, like, tell me something, what would be your, Back- si- your signature dish? <laughs> I don't think I have a signature dish. We've got some good lentil dishes. Uh, my daughter is nodding her head. That oh, go on, which one? Odyssea. What's that? You take lentils and you take onions and you chop the onions reasonably small and you put them in a pot with water. And what you put with it depends on the recipe. But the 10th century version that I'm particularly fond of, you put oil and vinegar and a little sugar and you cook it until the lentils are done and you add saffron. Wow, saffron. But there's also a version of it where you poach eggs in it. All right. Oh, yes. Uh, saffron must have been hard to get hold. And pepper as well as the saffron. Wow. So, yeah, not not the most complicated dishes necessarily, but... Yeah. Uh, I, I have a flatbread. <laughs> That's daily cooking because it's not complicated. <laughs> yeah. That's the one of which a later cook says... Now, there are four kinds of odyssea. And the first, I'm not going to bother to tell you how to make because you can get it on every street corner in Baghdad. Right, yes. <laughs> there are many, many more complicated recipes in that cookbook. We yeah. don't do them as often. But were these, were, were these, are these recipes recipes of the um, common person or are these, no? No. Basically, the lowest you get in the historical recipes are sort of upper middle class. Uh, and now some of them... Some of the things the aristocrats ate may also have been things. That is my daughter's point about every corner on Baghdad. So that was presumably something that both goes into the uh, the, the cookbook for upper-class people and was eaten by ordinary people. Uh, but the sources tend to be aristocratic sources, basically. There's a French uh, late 14th century book, Le Ménager de Paris, which is a household... How, basically how to run a household. And it purportedly, at least, was written by a sort of upper-middle-class Frenchman uh, 
for his much younger wife. And I think that that her she was an orphan or her mother hadn't, in any case, he had some reason to think she hadn't been properly trained in running a household. So he wrote a book of instructions for her. And it includes a whole bunch of recipes along with a bunch of other things. And that's quite fun. Like an ancient Mrs. Beaton's. Do you know sure. Mrs. Beaton? Yeah, well, that's modern. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I mean. The, 19th, the, yeah. 19th century, 18th century, I think 19th. Anyway. I yep. bought my I bought my now my partner of uh, one of those. It was a, it was a sort of joke. Yes. But we live where I live in Wales. We live near a place called Hay on Wye, and it's a famous town of books. Is it? Mm. Yes, there's hundreds of bookshops there, and yes. you can find. And I found an old Mrs. Beaton. Yes, that had been signed to my darling somebody, 1927. So I just added yes. my own to my darling, you know, 1998 or whatever it uh -huh. was, you know. Yes. And, and but it, I, I do. I mean, there is a if you. I mean, for example, if you someone who would like to be self sufficient, they're a fantastic read. They mm. really. Do, they have a. I mean, they 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 don't just teach you how to cook. They teach you how to run a household, like you yep. say. And I wonder what the your version. Yes. Was. The 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 nearest thing we have to a Russian medieval cookbook is something called Domestroy, which is, again, a household management manual. Uh, and we've extracted a few recipes. Not, it doesn't really have anything that's set up as recipes, but there are places where it tells you enough things so you can, can, can figure it out. The, the thing with medieval European recipes is that they usually don't include inessential details such as quantities, temperatures, or times. It's a verbal description. The Islamic ones are a little better. They will sometimes give you the quantities by weight. Uh, but so what we do is basically take a recipe and then try to do an interpretation consistent with the recipe that works. How did they not give you the time of cooking? That's... How would they give you the time? They don't have watches. Well, they, I would say they would say cook until. Oh, that you they, can. They, you they can, could say sure. They could yeah. say cook until it's soft or yeah. cook until. You press but, this part of your. But you know. But they, I can't. I, offhand, I can't think of any which specify a time in hours, although they. They could have done it, but it wouldn't have been very convenient. I mean, it's not like you have watches and clocks all over the place. There's yeah. probably a town clock somewhere if you're in Leighton period. Okay, well, let's, if you don't mind, stay yeah. on medieval times. Mm -hmm. Because um, I, I'm, I'm uh, since I've been sort of working with these guys, mm. um, we the no, the, something that's come up in, a lot in our conversations have been medieval city-states. yes. And I've been searching for someone to talk to about them on the podcast. Um, and I'm pretty sure you know a fair bit about them. Is that right? A little, but not a lot. Uh, the No, I, I know about some past legal systems, uh, but I don't know a lot about, say, the Italian city-states. Uh, one of the interesting things, which is not the same thing you're doing, but it's related, is that you do get polylegal systems in the medieval period. So that, for example, in the basically the southern shore of the Baltic, you have areas, we have Slavic areas with German merchants in them, and they're under different law. And for that matter, you were, you're living in Wales. Welsh were not, there, there was a noticeable period of time when the Welsh in Wales were under Welsh law for certain issues, not for everything, and the English were under English laws. Uh, so, oh, speaking of which, going back for a moment to the other medieval stuff, one of the medieval 
English characters I'm particularly interested in and have written some poems about is William Marshall, who, among other things, was Earl of Pembroke. <coughs> Sorry, that just went right around the wrong yeah. went down the wrong way. But I'm not sure. I'm trying to think about what I know about the city-states that would be useful, and I'm not sure I know a lot. Well, just, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you, what your opinions on how, let's take, say, for example, the, the notion of a free private city. How do they arise? How do they, how do they sort of begin? Because there are certain yeah, like problems. Well, what, one thing that happens pretty routinely in the Middle Ages is a king uh, selling tax exemptions. So, and for that matter, if you think about the relation between Jews and the government in a lot of European medieval places, in effect, the Jews had legal, the, 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 the Jewish communal authorities were given legal authority over the Jews in that area. And I think it was typically the case that, they did, that the Jews did not pay taxes individually to the crown. Uh, the communal authorities found some way of collecting the money and then had agreed to pay a certain amount. Uh, one of the things that struck me, which is actually getting pretty close to here, was that in Moorish uh, Spain, uh, in, in Al-Andalus, according to at least some sources I have seen, the Royal authorities were not, o- were not only willing to enforce criminal penalties ruled by the Jewish court against Jews, they were even willing to enforce criminal cr- penalties for the crime of being an informer telling the uh, Christian authorities about things that the Jews wanted to keep secret. Uh, so that would be a fairly, fairly striking case of that. Uh, but you get other forms, you get both formal polylegal, both official polylegal, which is that that is, and implicit polylegal, the Romani, for example. Uh, the Romani, at least for the period, for maybe the first 50 or 100 years after they show up in Western Europe, are claiming to have been given by the Holy Roman Emperor, I think, the authority to rule, to, 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 to judge their own people. And we don't know if it's true or not. It's not impossible because you do have that, as I say, that sort of thing with Jews. But at least their claim was that, and they had their own institutions for enforcing their own rules, uh, which were independent of the official rules of the kingdoms they happened to be in. So you certainly get medieval cases where different people, even in the same place, are under different law. Uh, and as in the Welsh case. I don't think that Welsh in England proper were under Welsh law, though I'm not sure. And I think in this case, my guess is it would not have covered criminal law, that it would have been things like marriage and inheritance and that sort of thing. Uh, What's, um, <clears throat> when, you, when you say Romani, Romani, is that? People who are only called gypsies. Yeah, right. Did they um, travel with their, I mean, when, when something legal needed sorting out, you know, I think of, you know, medieval courthouses, for example, for places like, yep. what, do they just amass in a circle and, and the, whatever, you know? It's a little complicated. One of the interesting things about the Romani is they split geographically and the different groups did not all end up with the same institutions. But one of the common forms, the one that's usual in the Vlachram, uh, is that you 
when there is a dispute which people can't settle privately, uh, you call essentially a council of all the adult males, and some are omni group, including the females, some not. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a real judge, although I think there are people who are sort of organizing it. And they basically talk about talk through until they get consensus, and then that consensus verdict is imposed with the threat of Marame, which is both religious pollution and uh, exile from the group. Mm. That exile is too strong, but other people can't, can't associate with you in various ways. Uh, and of course, an, an interesting example in the U.S. at present would, would be the Amish, uh, that the Amish, in effect, uh, enforce their own rules on their own people. They are theoretically under U.S. law, but it's sort of hard to enforce a law if nobody will, will tell you what, what's happening. They have successfully gotten the right to violate the compulsory schooling laws that Amish, uh, they actually won a Supreme Court case, and they largely have their own sort of one-room schoolhouses. They... Kids go to school, I think, through seventh grade and then are, in theory, being uh, sort of apprenticed to the, usually to their parents in running a household or a farm. So that's a case where you've got an essay theoretically under the same law in most respects, although they've also gotten out of Social Security. Uh, uh, well, Amish who are working for Amish employers do not have to pay Social Security taxes and don't collect Social Security. Amish who are working for non-Amish employers do. Uh, what, <clears throat> what 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 part of federal law do Amish have to adhere to then? I would have said that in theory, any federal law except for the Social Security right. uh, would be binding on them. But I suspect that some federal laws would be harder to enforce on them because uh, they don't. The Amish pretty much don't believe in the criminal law approach to things. Uh, so it's not at all clear that if an Amish committed a murder that they would ever get reported. Uh, well, um, going back to the Romany again, because yes. one of my neighbours back in Wales is a former traveller who has, she settled in a house at, at, in the end nearby us. And I've interviewed her a number yeah. of times, actually, because I just yeah. love hearing her stories. Yes. But she's probably Roman shawl which is a different group than the Vlachram. And the Romanchal are really interesting from my standpoint because they have what I like to describe as a primitive version of the legal system of 10th century Iceland. That is to say, it's a feud system. <laughs> Hold on a minute, wait a minute. Let's say that again. Ten the the Romanchal have what I like to describe as a primitive version of the legal system of 10th century Iceland. Okay, right. Which I have written about. What, well, why 10th century Iceland? Oh, 10th century Iceland is the, the period of the sagas. It's, uh, it keeps going, but, but things degenerate by the, well, certainly by the 13th century. And so we've got a lot of description of that, of that system in what are essentially books, although they, they was oral but then got written down, uh, written by people at the end of the period. Uh, and that was a, a feud system. It was a system in which there were laws and there were courts, but there was no government enforcement of law so that you could uh, sue somebody and get a verdict, and it was then up to you and your friends to enforce it. Uh, and the Roman child system, is, at least as I've seen it described, uh, you don't have a formal legal code, but you have uh, norms that people in the society more or less agree on. 
And if I, if one Roman shawl wrongs another, the other one demands compensation. It is understood that if the, that if that if his claim is real, his friends will back him. The other person's friends won't back him, and they'll beat him up if he if he doesn't pay. Uh, and the alternative is he leaves town. So whereas the Icelandic was a more organized, formal version of it, the basic logic, which is that if you wrong somebody, he threatens to harm you unless you compensate him. And you then have some mechanism for distinguishing, as I like to put it, for some mechanism such that right makes might, some mechanism such that the claims of having been harmed are somehow being tested by third parties. So in a, <clears throat> say in the Romany version, yes, which is completely oral, right? There's no, there's no written tradition. Correct. How is a group of people coming to the consensus that the the rep- the, the ask your neighbor <laughs> well yeah no i i mean i mean i haven't i haven't been there the 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 vlachram version uh you're actually having a meeting of sort of everybody uh, and presumably that's not a huge number of people typically uh but the uh the roman child version uh, I, i'm getting my description from a book on gypsy law uh and i a lot of this stuff went into my most recent book, which was on legal systems, very different from ours. Uh, and by their account, uh, it's just that you've got a community of people who know each other, and mm. someone says, you know, he did such and such to me, and then the other people can ask questions, and they know the people and so forth, and it becomes reasonably clear that he did or didn't do such, and, and that they do or don't agree that it's a, a wrong. And necessarily, the arbiter is the older a gentleman or I don't know who. Well, but I don't think, no, I think in the Roman child version, the arbiter is the opinion of the community. Right. Uh, because I, I, I was just thinking, <clears throat> I've spent a lot of time in Mongolia working. Uh, and yes. Especially living with one particular group of people, the, yes. Kaz- the Kazakhs, who are nomadic. And everything they do. Sorry, how are you spelling that? As in, well, they're... they're fo- K-H or K- C-O? K-H. Yes. They're, they're Kazakh people who yes. are who now live in Mongolia. They were annexed there about 150 yes. years ago. But they still end up, they've ended up in a very sh- corner of Mongolia, living a very natural lifestyle. Yeah. They're still, you know, nomadic. But I've been there with, when disputes have happened. Mm-hmm. And they um, defer to, I mean, n- normally things like marital disputes mm-hmm. as well. They defer to the older gentleman Mm. who come up with a plan mm. between them and just issue it, and mm-hmm. they have to follow it. That's a, you know, and, and it's a very common sort of but method. It's, but, of, but it's an informal version rather than a formal version. This is, well, this is, it depends what you mean by informal, because the, like you say, there are communities and everyone knows everyone. Yes. So you don't really need to find and seek out the state and say, maybe, well, sure. But, if what, was, if, but what if, what if the elderly person rules against me and I say, well, wait a minute, here's some, uh, here are some other respectable elder people. Let me get them to. There's seven families within the Kazakh tribe. Uh-huh. And if you're in a family, if you're in, your surname is a particular surname, yes. then you answer to that tribe. And, um, like I say, the, the, the rules are literally passed to and, you. And if, what happens in, in intertribal disputes? Do you know? Um, there's a lot of fighting. I've seen that. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. No, I've, I, like I say, I've, I've, I've spent a long time with one particular family. And on a couple of occasions, yeah. I've noticed a dispute. Mm. And like, um, especially the marital one, which is 
I mean, the, 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 the couple who are in dispute mm. have no say in what they're going to do. And often the answer is, you've just got to be a better husband and you've got to be a better wife and this is how you're going to do it, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But um, I've never seen anything like a murder yes. or yes. A, something like that. The American Romani, uh, who are mostly Vlachram, one of the issues is that it's a bride purchase system. And there's, there are a couple of books by an American anthropologist who spent quite a lot of time interacting with them. Uh, and she's describing a situation where a man buys a bride for his son. The son then complains that the bride refuses to sleep with him. And the conclusion is that it's an attempt at extortion, that the idea is that they want to keep the money and take back the bride. <laughs> and this ends up as a dispute, a feud, uh, where I think he eventually gets his way. I don't remember. I think I think I think he gets his money back. Is I think the final outcome. <laughs> right. Uh, um, I I, th I think we should probably talk about free cities. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm uh, like I say, I'm relatively new to the subject, mm -hmm. but I have now spoken to over thirty people mm -hmm. in depth, mm -hmm. and I'm committing as much of it to memory as I can. Mm -hmm. But very interested to hear your view your uh, i tell you what i'm most interested to hear is how how you see what hurdles that you see obvious hurdles to that the that is there there are two obvious problems one of them has to do with the interaction to the host government and that the obvious risk is that it will pay the, the host government to offer you very attractive terms and then wait until you've made large capital investments and then change the the terms on them on you uh, and the other side of the problem is how do you keep the free cit cities behaving themselves, as it were? That is to say, what, what kind of governmental structures do they have? And ideally, the solution to both of those is to have your people and your capital be reasonably mobile, so that if you have a society where the reason there's a high income is not that somebody's got a very expensive factory there, but that a bunch of intelligent, able, productive people with firm structures uh, and bargaining structures and so forth are doing stuff there. Well, if the local government, if, if the city government starts, whatever its mechanism starts going badly, uh, they can just pick up and move to another such city. And if the uh, uh, local, uh, there, there's... I don't know if you've ever read anything by C. Northcott Parkinson. He was an English academic living, I think, in, in Singapore, uh, who was very good at writing funny essays, making serious points. And his famous one is, is Parkinson's Law, which is that work expands to fill the time available. Uh, but one of his other ones, he's discussing taxation, and he says that... Uh, the productive people of the world have discovered by long and hard experience they will usually have to pay about 10% of their income to some gangster, feudal lord, or Department of Internal Revenue. It matters little what you call it. When the rates get higher than that, the Israelites start looking at the atlas. There are probably better places to be than Egypt. And right. now he was optimistic about the rate, but the basic point is that governments are constrained by migration. Uh, and therefore, the free city argument is going to work best if it's being occupied by people who can easily migrate. Okay, so <clears throat> that's my answer to both of those number. So interaction with your host, that would be a contract. So would but that you, but, you can, but you can't enforce, there isn't a way of enforcing contracts against sovereign states. 
Is that right? Pretty much. That is. What about private companies that are? That is, you you can try to inf- you to some extent you can enforce things by reputation, which is sort of a standard non-court mechanism. And certainly, if if a government reneges on its agreements, it's going to have a, have a hard time getting anybody else to set up another free city there, and that's going to be a constraint. Uh, and there are. There are international courts, but they don't really have an, a, an army or a police force to enforce it. I mean, you know, you can rule that Putin is uh, a criminal, which I think the court actually has ruled. I think it's Putin's uh, that did, but they've got no way of actually uh, grabbing him and, and, and putting him in jail. Uh, so so I think really enforcing, enforcing in the strong sense of enforcing is probably not likely to be an option. Uh, now you could imagine there are actually you could do it if the government was willing. Suppose you had a government which was not planning to renege, but but knew that you were afraid they would. You could imagine they're they're depositing some large sum of money with a third with a trusted third party uh, in some other in some country that had reliable courts and agreeing if we renege on this contract that'll forfeit. So that would be a way if they were willing to do it. Tell I don't know, don't know that any, any of them I had. Think, uh, well, look, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know about um, Prospera. In, yeah. They, I spoke to um, a couple of the legal guys at Prospera, yeah. and they said, for example, that Prospera is part of the Central American Dominican Re- Republic Free Trade Agreement. So, you know, and because they've got, the U.S. is a signatory of that, mm. and they've got U.S. investors. That means if the government would ever come in and steamroll the place mm. or whatever, they'd have a they'd have a problem with the with our other you know another legal. Well, system. but 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 how does that? Uh, I don't know the details, but how how does that constrain Honduras and how it treats Prospera? It doesn't, but it unless they didn't want say sanctions from America, say like. But what? But 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 but. But what? So they're they're part of the free trade agreement. So that means that uh, that Honduras can't tax uh, imports to Prospera. But why can't they tax land in Prospera? They do, I think, and tax tax incomes in Prospera. They and and insist on enforcing their in, in insist that dispute, Prospera's disputes have to go into Honduran courts. That is, what part of the special deal that Pospera gets would be violated? I think it's expropriating. Um, I think it relates to expropriation. So yeah. the investments by U.S. investors were made in Prospera under certain conditions, under conditions that they'd be in a special regulatory regime for a 50-year period. So if Prospera's government... But how is but but if prosperous government covers that, how is that violating U.S. law? Because the U.S. have um, U.S. investors; they have investors. The treaty itself between the U.S., Honduras, Dominican Republic, and a few yep. other countries yes. in the region states that you cannot expropriate the property of investments, and I believe it of the property of of investors from the other country. Yes. In your, in your state. Right. So that would limit it some. But but what if, what if instead of expropriating, they simply say commercial disputes involving uh, people in Prospera will get judged like other commercial disputes in, Hon- in Honduran courts? My understanding of the treaty, and I'm not a lawyer, 
but mm. my understanding of the treaty is that there's something in it that precludes the change of, of the conditions. Yeah, so that yeah I, I just don't know. That is, uh, But as I say, in principle, a country could agree to bind itself by putting assets under the control of somebody other than them that would forfeit. But I... I would be a little surprised if a country was willing to do that, though I may be wrong. Okay, I'll come back. I want to come back to that mm. one. Another one. The other one was we need mo- we need mobility for it to work. And uh, someone it, it, who has it would, a family, it, it would <laughs> it would work better the more mobile it is. Now you don't have to have complete mobility. After all, if if half the assets are entirely mobile, that would make it pretty expensive for somebody to renege on the agreement and try to seize it, even if the other half half weren't. Uh, and but yes, the, the, I would have said that the more mobile your people and your assets are, the less problem you're going to have maintaining it. Yeah, I, I, that, that one does strike me as um, difficult because I have a family, yes. uh, three young children. And funnily enough, when, COVID, when the COVID lockdowns happened, we decided to leave England and yeah. go look for somewhere different. Yes. And part of that idea was that, oh, maybe we could settle somewhere. But in the end... We were away for a year yeah. in Central America. My wife decided she couldn't leave home. She couldn't leave her family. Yes. So that's a very strong retaining factor. That's something that really does keep people yeah, in but, at one but, place. But presumably the people who are in Prospera are people who already left, left home. Yes, but how many... Yeah, agreed. But I would imagine they're more likely to be a certain demographic. Young, young people, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I've interviewed one family who've bought a place there, but um, they are, you know, a European family. But other than that, uh, it's still a kind of work in progress. This is something that I don't know whether people will settle and feel like it's home or whether mm. they'll go, right, we're, you know, a bit like... But, but this is a problem for any any migration. It's not just new cities. True, <clears throat> but it's, it's less of a work in progress when you move to the Welsh countryside yeah. like we did. Yeah. We know what we're letting ourselves in for. So, so I mean, I'm not. I'm trying to play devil's yeah. advocate yeah. here. I want to know yeah. whether this is a, a good and viable alter, uh, option. Yeah. But, but it seems to me that, the, that that problem is the same as the problem of somebody who wants, as in your earlier case, of somebody who wants to move somewhere because they don't like the country they're in or something. Uh, and obviously not everybody's going to. I mean, I, I'm not very happy about the state that I'm in, uh, but I've been planting fruit trees for something like 28 years, and I don't really want to abandon my orchard, and we have friends and you know social relations and things of that sort in that area. Uh, so that's, that's going to limit mobility. But if insofar as people are willing to settle somewhere different at all, it would seem to me that your free city is likely to be a more comfortable environment for them than a, ran- than a random part of Honduras because it's got legal rules that are more or less based on Anglo-American common law, I think. I think that's how, how Prospera does it. And uh, it's going to have a whole bunch of other people who also are not Hondurans, uh, probably a bunch of people from a roughly the same, you know, from U.S. and, and Western Europe mostly, uh, so I would think it would be a a less natural environment where they came from, but a more natural environment than other places they could go to. And of course, once these things are established, 
if you've got a bunch of people who've been living, you know, in, in a free city for 20 years, and if things do go badly, well, there's another free city, you know, in another country, you know, 500 miles away, fine, you could move to there. It would be the same culture, more or less. So uh, is it something you're generally optimistic about, the, the prospect of? For number one, I'm, I'm do you more, think I'm, it's important? I'm, I'm more optimistic about it than about seasteading, which was my elder son's project. Patry. Uh, right. Yeah. And seasteading seemed to me as a great idea that probably wouldn't work, but would be very nice if it did. And free cities are one step down from that in both directions. It's considerably more likely to work and not as great an idea, but would be a good idea. Uh, and in particular, I think there's a great deal to be said for competition uh, and that free cities give you the possibility of having essentially small governments that are competing with each other. Uh, and it's becoming more of a possibility now because of technological and economic changes that in a world where most of your people are, by the standards of 100 years ago, wealthy, in a world where the internet means that you can have close commercial and even uh, intellectual relations with people on the other side of the world, uh, it makes it more practical than it used to be uh, that if I try... I, I, at one point, I visited India and had my daughter with her with me, and she was doing the same things online that she would have been doing if she'd been home, uh, and so was I. Uh, so, so I think all of that stuff uh, pre creates uh, a real possibility uh, of people being enough more mobile. So, and it's not like you have to have the whole population of the world in free cities. You know, one percent would still be uh, eighty million people. Right, but would a small number of free cities be? Uh, would they? Would there be the security? Would the security be there in a way? I, I think. Well, the security, in a sense, the security is being provided by the host country. The free right. city doesn't have its own army and, and navy. But on the other hand, you can have a world where it is clear to lots of people who aren't in free cities that the free cities are an attractive option to lots of governments. Well, you know, maybe we could uh, do better if we offered a little bit of our land that we're not using very much to some of these productive people who agreed to pay us some fixed uh, amount of, of, of rent and so forth. So I think, I think there's at least the possibility for producing uh, less unattractive uh, political systems. What was your reservation with seasteading then? I could probably guess, but... Why, uh, why do you put seasteading lower down the? You know, the that is a large part of the problem. That is, there are really two two different ways to do seasteading. One of them is in territorial waters, and the other is on the high seas. And you don't have a navy either. Uh, and if you're doing it in territorial waters, then you have the same problem as the, as the free city problems. The only advantage is that if things get bad enough, you can call towboats and find somebody else who won't let you do it in their territorial waters. Which is an important factor. I mean, that's, that's one something. Of the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, and if you're doing it on the high seas, you, you, the problem is if you have very valuable stuff, somebody may well come steal it. Uh, what about the, the thought of living... Oh, on well, in, I don't know. <laughs> I, that, I've seen it, prototypes. It, it, it would depend how well it worked. If you if you really ended up with a situation where there are a thousand giant rafts all linked together, that's going to feel a lot like a city. Yes, or a town at least. And so I don't think it's going to going to be so difficult. Uh, the first people, it's going to be very hard. But that's like people who presently live in boats, which some people do now. 
Yeah, or cruise ships. Yeah, I mean, like, I think, you know. Okay, then, so this morning, the first interview I did, which ended up, we were spoken for two hours about the colonization of Mars, funnily enough. And what what I found... Not going to happen in the next century, probably not. You reckon? The first problem is getting off Earth. The first problem to develop any serious space civilization is getting the the cost to orbit of a kilogram of mass much lower. You've got to drop it by at least an order of magnitude and probably two orders of magnitude before it's really practical to... To, to have have serious interaction. And there are a number of technological ways it could be done, but I don't think it'll like happen anytime soon. If you can do it, the last thing you want to do, having having just climbed at great expense out of one gravity well, is to dump into it, drop into another. So the sensible thing to do until we have a whole lot better technology is to maybe colonize the asteroids or some asteroids to build space habitats. You start out putting one at the Lagrangian, uh, the L5, I guess it is, the one of the stable Lagrangian points, which are points in the Earth-Moon system where if you put something, it'll stay there, where orbits don't decay, so to speak. They're stable equilibria. Uh, and uh, once you can develop, I mean, the, developing the technologies that would let people live in, spa- in space habitats, it's not trivial, but it's a whole lot easier than uh, colonizing a planet when you've got to get down and up. If we could get to the planet for, for free, I mean, if we had cheap transportation, if you had teleporting or something, then colonizing Mars becomes an interesting project because you've got, you know, a lot of dirt there that you can do stuff with. I was going to say the resources are the attractive part of being on a planet though. Asteroids have resources too, not all the same resources. Are asteroids easy to get on and off of? I yeah, of course. I don't really know. There there's a pool pool Anderson was a science a pretty good science fiction writer, not and one of his sort of some tongue-in-cheek stories, he has somebody get off an asteroid using a spaceship propelled by beer. Right, <laughs> you know the beer beer foams out. Uh, it, do, it you know it takes very little force because the gravity is so weak. Right, uh, and given Anderson, I'm sure he did the arithmetic. He figured out that it would really work. So, in my discussion this morning, then um, the the speaker posited that the the next time, the only next time we will see something like the establishment of the U.S. Mm. will be in space. But space, he, not on Mars. Well, yeah. He did say it had to be another frontier. It had to be a, a real... He said there were no frontiers left in the U.S. In, in, maybe under the water. Maybe under the, maybe the seabed might be a frontier if you could develop technologies that made it much easier for people to spend long periods of time uh, deep underwater. You could imagine that being a different frontier. I wonder what's propelling people to do that. Is it the search for freedom? I mean, is the search to see around the corner? I mean, why would you choose? I, I mean, sure. But, the answer, only- but, but, but in the short run, if, if people develop ways of doing it, it would be resources. There's lots of stuff down on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and then if it became a sort of an easy thing and people were used to doing it, then you could imagine, uh, in effect... Uh, colonies or countries or something growing up there, but as I say, it seems to me that that the the best hope for that really is 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 space, but not not on a planet. It's things like the asteroid belt, uh, and uh, but but that's not going to happen until we get the cost to orbit much much lower. 
presumably you're <clears throat> optimistic about the private sector doing it pretty well. I mean, Elon seems to be. Yeah, but I mean, he's, he's he's doing much better than NASA. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> sure, but but I don't think that uh, with current technology that even Elon is going to get costs low enough. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, he's obviously a very talented guy, but, but low enough to make it really practical to do much uh, outside of you know the near Earth orbit, which is near Earth space, which is where we have been doing stuff. I'm guessing he has a. L- a long a low time preference let's say yeah with that with with the with in that regard um, yes yeah i've never seen a discussion with him about why mars instead of the asteroid belt because mars is so much harder me neither i mean when you're on an asteroid though are you traveling <laughs> somebody you're not on an orbit or you are you're in a very large orbit yeah just like the earth but Earth is in an orbit too. Yes, but you're not. You're not you're the orbiting same the distance sun. away from. You're, are you? you're oh, orbiting right. the sun, and uh, your orbital period is not the same as Earth's. So sometimes you're closer to Earth, and sometimes farther. Now there are some near Earth or near Earth asteroids, but uh, but even those are, don't stay near Earth all the time because they have different orbits. But uh, but the main asteroid belt is uh, outside the orbit of Mars, and. It's got lots and lots of rocks of varying sizes. Could, could you posit what the best governance model for an asteroid would be? If we're talking about, say... Well, for a bunch of asteroids, it might well be anarchy. That is, for a bunch of asteroids, it's not clear you need a government. Uh, I'm not sure you need a government anywhere, but but I think there's a, a better case when you have a whole bunch of people interacting on the same in, in the same limited land, as it were. How unsure? Not not sure you need a government anywhere. Like, my can first, you, can my, you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so, sure. My first book was published in the early 1970s, and it sketched what a market society without a government might plausibly look like. Uh, and I've done two more editions of it, which expand on the ideas. I also am reasonably familiar with systems that were in some sense government less like the saga period Iceland which was sort of a semi-stateless society uh, Somalia pre the establishment of the country of Somalia which was a stateless society uh, the uh, one of the Indian tribes which was a uh, stateless society. So it's certainly possible to have societies without a government. The question is, can you have a modern developed society without a government? And my guess is you could, but I'm not sure. Well, I, me neither. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I hope so. Uh, I believe so. I'm optimistic. Um, I can see we're, we're short of time now as well, so I'm going to have to wrap it up now. But I, before we do, I'd just like to ask you one more question, if I can. It's a, it's a hypothetical question. And it's something we ask all our guests. And you, you may well already have this, but if, I, if someone was to grant you a one-year sabbatical, during which everything was covered, all your costs, mm. you could do whatever you wanted, what would you do in that one year? I've had that for many years. Right. <laughs> I figured that might so be I can tell you, I can tell you what I have done. I, I, I continue living where I am. Uh, with growing fruit trees. Growing fruit trees and... I just committed myself a good many years ago to spend two hours a day, seven days a week on writing projects because I feel stale if I spend all my time eating lotus. Uh, And other than that, 
Uh, you know, I interact, I, I read, I spend a lot of time reading stuff online. I do historical recreation, though not a huge amount of it. Uh, Have you got anything in particular that you you are particularly excited about that, that is contemporary, that's new, that's that's not as talked about as... Uh, I can't think of anything. The thing I'm most interested in, of course, is life extension, but they, I don't think anything particularly new has happened recently in that subject. Uh, the, I'd be much more interested in free cities if I wasn't planning to get old. Interestingly, in Prospera, there are a number of life extension companies. Yeah, I hope now. one of them succeeds. Yeah. Well, um, thank you, David. It's fascinating talking huh? to you. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.